All right. So, yeah, let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of your spirit. Thank you for the way that you are shaping us to be your renewed and restored people in the world. Thank you that because of what you have done in your Son, that what you have done in Spirit, you are making us into the kind of people that can live not for ourselves, but for others and for you, the way we're created to. Amen. So, yeah, um, today's Pentecost Sunday. It's the close of this 50-day feast of Eastertide that began with Easter. And we've talked about how resurrection and spirit are the supreme sign of the eschaton, okay? And how what we celebrate at Easter and Pentecost indicated for Paul and those like him that the age to come had begun, even if the present evil age continued on for a time. So if resurrection and spirit are the supreme sign of the eschaton, what we're getting to today is perhaps its fullest expression, new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. And these are big, bold concepts. They have to do with some of the most significant things that God is doing in the world, where this whole thing is going. But what we'll see here is that Paul is still discussing them in the context of a defense of his cross-shaped, others-centered, self-giving ministry against the charges of these super-apostle figures. And I find it personally fascinating that Paul chooses to defend his approach to ministry by tapping into some of the most profound and mysterious and expansive concepts available. But that shows that worldview matters. And so on that note, over the next three sermons, we're also going to be looking at three different models of the atonement, of what was accomplished at the cross. These models, it's important to say right up front, are not mutually exclusive. All of them have something to teach us that is true, that is important, and that it's important to hold them together. And I think that the passage of 2 Corinthians that we are in, it touches on all three models in one respect or another, and so it's actually a really good place to discuss them. So let's read what Paul says, and remember that he's just discussed resurrection bodies, the Spirit as our guarantee of the age to come, and how we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So starting in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, He says, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So you can see here how Paul is continuing to defend his ministry against the charges of the super apostles. He's explaining why the Corinthians can be proud of him as their apostle, even though 
his ministry is cross-shaped, even though it bears all these marks of, of weakness and suffering. He does this, he's giving them this explanation so that they can take pride in who he is and answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Okay, that's clearly a reference to the super apostles who saw Paul as unimpressive in speech and presence. And so in a way, he's bringing things back around to where we began at the beginning of this series, at the end of chapter 2. And the flow of where he's been, it goes something like this. In 2.14 through 17, he talked about the way that his cross-shaped ministry was perceived and how that depended on a person's worldview. It depended specifically on their view of Jesus. If Jesus had lost at the cross, then Paul's ministry smelled like death. But if Jesus had been raised and ushered in the age to come, then it smelled like resurrection life. At the beginning of chapter, chapter 3, he talked about how the present evil age and its values of self-centered self-assertion saw cross-shaped ministry as death. And the super apostles shared that worldview as, as they valued status, they valued polished appearances, they valued credentials, Okay, all this sort of summed up in their letters of recommendation that we talked about. This is very much taking pride in what is seen that Paul's talking about here. But Paul had tied that curved in on ourselves perspective to the present age that's passing away. And he did that by linking their letters of recommendation to the tablets of stone of the Old Covenant. And he contrasted that with spirit and new covenant the new values of Jesus. So he went on in chapter 3 and through into chapter 4 that the, the old covenant, that old covenant on tablets of stone, that belonged to the old age of sin, of flesh, of death. The letter kills and those things are passing away. But the spirit belongs to the age to come and empowers people to love God and love neighbor the way that we are called and created to. The Spirit gives life. And in the face of Jesus and the Spirit, we see and are transformed into the image and glory that we were created for. Jesus shows us that this image and glory look like others-centered, self-giving love, rather than self-centered, self-assertion. And so Paul went on in chapter 4, that's why our limitations, that's why our weaknesses, much of what looks like death to the world are actually gift, they're treasure. Okay, they take the focus off of ourselves. They put it back onto God, onto his power that works in us. And so suffering, other-centered, self-giving, cross-shaped ministry is actually a participation in the death of Jesus. And that's where God's resurrection power is experienced. Participation in his death leads to participation in his life. And so because of this participation in Christ, the age to come um, is coming. And we can be confident that resurrection awaits us after death, that our mortality will be swallowed up by life, as Paul had said. And so on the outside, right, what we can see 
We may be dying as we follow Jesus, but on the inside, we are being renewed, and the physical bodies that suffer and die will one day be clothed with glorious immortal ones as his was. So that's the sweep of where Paul's been so far in the letter. And that's why Paul says that the Corinthians should be proud of his approach to ministry. Okay, cross-shaped as it is. And have an answer for those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. The super apostles focused on the self-centered, self-asserting values of the present evil age. But it's through participating in Christ's other-centered, self-giving, cross-shaped love through the Spirit that we enter the resurrection life of the age to come. And so that others-centeredness is what comes through in Paul's ambiguous statement here. He says, if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So whatever he may be referencing with the out of his mind and right mind comments, his point is that he lives for God and for them, not for himself. So he's others-centered like Jesus. And that's what brings him to what he says next. So in 5.14, he says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And that's literally, we regard no one according to the flesh. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. So it's Christ's love that motivates Paul to do what he does. Christ died for all. And that love compels Paul to live for God and for others. I think the concept of participation that we've talked about lies behind what Paul says next. He says, therefore, all died. Participation in Jesus is participation in his other-centered, self-giving, cross-shaped love. Paul continues, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Should live no longer for themselves. There's not too much I can add to that, but we will come back to it as we talk about atonement later. All right, so Paul continues by saying that he now regards no one according to the flesh. Okay, what the NIV translates as according to a worldly, or from a worldly point of view. And we discussed the concept of flesh in the Sermon on Letters of Recommendation some weeks back. Okay, it can be used to describe our self-centered, curved-in orientation that's characteristic of our sinful humanity. In this context here, it's quite clear that Paul's using the term 
to talk about regarding or knowing someone according to the flesh as evaluating that person or understanding that person according to the values of this present evil age. Okay, the wisdom of this age, as Paul has put it elsewhere. It's looking at the outward characteristics, as Paul has put it more recently. If winning is about overpowering and forcing our own forms on others, about gaining the upper hand, if it's achieved through self-centered self-assertion, then the cross is foolishness. It leads to death. And that's how Paul used to think about Jesus, right? Jesus had been crucified, which made anyone who put their faith in him as the Messiah a heretic. But, Paul says, we regard him in this way no longer. Paul had encountered the resurrected Christ. Paul had tasted the Spirit. Paul now participated in the age to come, and therefore he knew that the fleshly, self-centered mindset that viewed the cross as death leading to death was bound to the present evil age, and it was passing away. And that's what brings him to one of the most profound eschatological statements in the entire Pauline corpus. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, the old things have passed, behold, new things have come, or become, or come about. So one thing I should know is that the phrase new creation is all by itself. There's no other subject and verb to tell us exactly what Paul is saying about new creation. And so what we actually have is a few options, a few things that it could be. It's if anyone is in Christ, new creation, which could mean he or she is a new creation. It could also mean there is a new creation, or creation is new. All those things are grammatically viable options here. Now, I know a number of us, myself included, learn this verse as follows. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And the thought expressed there is certainly true. It's certainly a part of the picture. It's included in what this verse means. It is theologically correct. But the scope of what Paul is saying here extends far beyond simply the individual. Paul's inaugurated eschatology is very much in view, and he's drawing on the eschatological passages in Isaiah that promise a new heaven and a new earth, most notably the one that we read today in our call to worship. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. So when Paul says the old things have passed and the new things have come about, he's using those plural forms okay, that match the former things in the Isaiah passage. So I think he's referring to the new creation that was part of the eschatological expectations of the age to come. And so I think the best translation is something like, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation, or creation is new. Or as the New English Bible puts it, if, any was in, if anyone is in Christ, there is a whole new world. And that is why I like to welcome people to new creation 
when they are baptized. In Christ, we participate already in the new creation that God is bringing about. We are renewed as part of God's, large, of God's larger project of new creation. So with this understanding, we can paraphrase what Paul is saying something like this. And indeed, if anyone is in Christ, they participate in the new creation that God is bringing about in the resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit. The old age and its values have passed away. We live by the values of the age to come. So in short, Paul is encouraging them to live and to think in light of this profound eschatology. This is what you are. Paul is saying. We who are in Christ are members of new creation. And so don't let the self-centered values of the old age affect your evaluations of people, Christ or anyone else. Rather, live in light of the other-centered values of the age to come that Christ has inaugurated in his death and resurrection. And that, I think, is a really good place to transition to this model of the atonement that I wanted to address today, because it has to do with how we think and how we live. So again, when I use the word atonement, what I, what I essentially mean by that is what Jesus accomplished at the cross, what the cross does. And C.S. Lewis has some thoughts that I found really, I have thought for a long time, were really helpful for approaching this concept in his book, Mere Christianity. And so I thought I'd read a couple of those this morning. He says, The central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. Theories as to how it did this are another matter. A good many different theories have been held as to how it works. What all Christians are agreed on is that it does work. He continues, We are told that Christ was killed for us, that his death has washed out our sins, and that by dying, he disabled death itself. That is the formula. That is Christianity. That is what has to be believed. Any theories we build as to how Christ's death did all this are, in my view, quite secondary. Mere plans or diagrams to be left alone if they do not help us. And even if they do help us, not to be confused with the thing itself. All the same, some of these theories are worth looking at. And so as Lewis says, there are different ways of breaking down the various theories of the atonement. And one of the most highly regarded categorizations of these theories is by breaking them down into three, essentially three broad models. There's the Christus Victor model, which understands it as, understands the cross as where Jesus conquered the powers of sin and death, the devil, the principalities and powers at the cross. There's penal substitution, where Jesus pays the penalty for sin at the cross in our place. And then there's the moral influence or moral example model, where Jesus shows us 
the way of love. And in my view, we are on the surest footing when we see all three of these as necessary models, necessary aspects of the atonement, of what was accomplished at the cross. When one is left out, we run into problems. I think they all contribute to the full picture. And similarly, when one is overemphasized at the expense of the others, I think we run into problems. For us, is in the evangelical tradition, right, we're downstream of the Protestant Reformation. If there's a model that's overemphasized at the expense of others, it tends to be penal substitution. And one thing that frustrates me about the, the way that this discussion often goes is when people who only emphasize that dimension of the cross suggest that by opening up these other perspectives, these other models, that we are somehow denying penal substitution. Although, there, in fairness, there are some people who try to deny that. So saying penal substitution is not the whole story is not the same as saying that there's no place for penal substitution. Okay? Nonetheless, some people think that penal substitution should take up the entire frame. That we are okay without the other models because penal substitution is really all that matters. And that is a view that I reject. I don't think that you can hold that view in light of Scripture's broader teaching on the cross. And today's passage is one of the reasons I think that's true. So let's take another look at it. In 5, 14, and 15, Paul said, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that, that's the word hina, in order that, it gives purpose, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So the purpose that Paul provides in this passage for the cross is the effect it has on the way we live. Jesus died so that we might no longer live for ourselves. And if you look back at everything he's covered in this letter that we've covered in this series, it very much aligns with that idea. The death and resurrection of Jesus provide us with a new worldview, one in which cross-shaped living is not understood as death or losing, but is where the power of God is experienced and where we find true resurrection life. One of the assignments that I give Navigator staff who come through my New Testament course is to trace the theme of the cross in 1 Corinthians. And the reason I do that is because when we pay attention, it becomes clear that the cross is much more than a one-time event that paid the penalty for sin. The cross, for Paul, is the picture of an entire lifestyle that we are called to. And 1 Corinthians can be understood as a bunch of different ways that the Corinthians are instructed to lay aside self-centered self-assertion and adopt instead the others-centered self-giving love that Jesus modeled for us on the cross. At the cross, Jesus didn't just do something for us. He also gave us an example to follow. 
We see that also in Jesus' own words in Mark 8. So starting in 8.31, it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter was still thinking according to the values of the present evil age, where death is losing. You can't lose, you're the Messiah. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Again, the concerns of this present evil age. And then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And there are parallel versions of this passage in Matthew and Luke as well, but note that Jesus first explains that he must suffer and die. He talks about the cross. And then he immediately, um, and, then, and then Peter criticizes, and then he, sorry, he, then he criticizes the worldly mindset that has a problem with that teaching. And he follows that rebuke of Peter by saying that discipleship requires taking up our own cross. Okay? Compare that with the thoughts that we've just read in 2 Corinthians 5 here. And so this um, is certainly not the only example where the cross is a kind of example, something we're called to follow, comes up. In 1 Peter, we see a, another really important passage in this respect. He says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So this passage is notable for multiple reasons. First, again, look at how it aligns with what we're reading in 2 Corinthians. He died for all, so that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. Second, in this passage in 1 Peter, Christ's suffering is explicitly described as an example. There are two purpose statements to this effect. He left his suffering example for the purpose that we should follow it. He bore our sins on the cross for the purpose that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. 
And finally, it's notable because moral example is blended with Jesus bearing our sins. He quotes Isaiah 53 about Jesus bearing our sins on the cross. But then he doesn't say something like, he bore our sins to pay our penalty, which is the purpose that the penal model typically gives for this passage. He says the purpose for this was so that we might die to sin. All these concepts go together in the New Testament. And we would do well not to pull them apart, not to emphasize one over the other. All right, we see more of this understanding in Hebrews 12. There it says at the very beginning, starting in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the, mar the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So in what he does on the cross, Jesus is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Okay, pioneer means something like one who begins something that's first in a series, thereby, thereby providing impetus for further development. It's, it's one who begins or originates and therefore was the recipient of special esteem in the Greco-Roman world. Jesus, specifically at the cross, pioneers a new way for us. He sets an example for us to follow. And by doing so, he opens up a new way for us, a new set of possibilities. There's some similar stuff in Hebrews 13 you can look at, but I'm going to skip for the sake of time. Because I want to get to Philippians 2, where we see this in a really profound and important way. Paul had opened this passage by saying, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In other words, do nothing out of self-centered self-assertion. That's what those words essentially mean. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul's describing there is the others-centered, self-giving love that we've been talking about. In your relationships with one another, he says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, right? He, he humbled himself, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's the mindset that we are called the cross is the ultimate example of the life and mindset that God calls us to. It is the ultimate act of other-centered, self-giving love. And so there are two things I want to draw together about this model of the atonement as we close, of the moral example or the moral influence model. The first is that love really is at the center of this. 
And throughout this series, I've identified the cross with others-centered, self-giving love repeatedly, right? Ephesians 5, 2, love just, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us. Others-centered, self-giving love. Galatians 2, 20, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Here in 2 Corinthians 5, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. And so the moral example that Christ sets for us through the cross is not arbitrary suffering. It's not suffering for the sake of it. It's the example of giving ourselves out of love for others. That's what God is like. That's what we are called to in Christ. And that brings us to the second point about the moral example model. I mentioned that by pioneering a way for us, Jesus opened up that new way. And I want to dwell on that for just another minute. Because the example and influence here is not purely external. Remember, first of all, that the Spirit is involved, right? The Spirit that was poured out on all flesh at Pentecost. It's the Spirit that lives out Christ's faithful obedience, this cross-shaped love in us. It's the Spirit that empowers us to love God and neighbor, following in Jesus' example. But there's another empowering dimension to his example that I think is worth thinking about. I I like the image of pioneering because it presents Jesus as a kind of trailblazer. Through his suffering example, he really does, in an important way, create a new path. There's something that's just truly unique about his self-emptying sacrifice for the sake of others at the cross. And I would suggest that could only come from God. There's a church history book that I have, and it opens with the idea, I think I've shared this before, that that Christianity is the only religion that has as its central event the humiliation of its God. So think about that in a world of strong men, in a world where we're surrounded by abuse, the most powerful being is revealed to us as one who becomes a servant on our behalf, who empties himself in love for us. There's something profoundly gripping about that. There's something profoundly transformative about that. And Jesus shows us that. He, he, he opens up this new possibility of a new way of being. And so, having seen his example, we have our minds and our worldviews opened the idea that there is another way. There's a better way. And I think that's part of what produces the transformation from glory to glory that we've seen talked about here. When we look at Jesus, when we consider his example, it changes us. The cross accomplishes something in us. Having witnessed what is possible, we are empowered to walk in it in a way that we would not have been able to apart from that example. And this model of the atonement uniquely carries with it the obligation that we do walk in that love. It demands something from us. And so for those reasons, I think that we need to recover moral influence and example 
as an important part of what is accomplished at the cross. So let me close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the example that you set for us as you died on our behalf, as you died out of other-centered, self-giving love. Thank you that in doing us, you show us a new way to live. Thank you that you reveal something that is deep and profound about your very nature, about your very character, and therefore also about the nature of the world that we live in. We pray that by your Spirit living in us, we would be transformed, we would be shaped to follow on the path that you have opened up through your suffering example. We pray that you would shape us so that we become characterized by your other-centered, self-giving love. And that in doing so, we would demonstrate your example to the world around us that so desperately needs to see that kind of love. Amen.